Paul uses that as an illustration to say, see, this is an instance of what I'm talking about. Peter did the same thing that you were doing. He took the gospel that was a gift of salvation from God, and he added something to it, the customary requirement that, the, that Jews withdraw from Gentiles from table fellowship. And Paul uses that as an illustration to the, to the Galatian Christians to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be perverted, it cannot be distorted, it is salvation that is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone and nothing else. Not Jesus plus these few requirements or Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus the dietary laws or Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. And so that's the larger context of what Paul was saying when he wrote that sentence that we mentioned earlier. So in this, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Within that, there is a, there are a number of profound truths that we can talk about. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean that Christ now lives in me? What does it mean that the life that I live, I live by faith in Christ? What do these things mean? We'll talk about those in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to give you an image to put into your mind. This is a powerful image that I have found Tremendously helpful to help me to think about the Christian life, to help me to think about following Christ here in this life. And it's the image that is found in many, many, many bluegrass songs, probably four out of ten bluegrass songs. It's the image of a train. How many bluegrass songs have something to do with a train? Right? We got Train 45, we got Wabash Cannonball, we got Orange Blossom Special, we got uh, John Henry, we got Nine Pound Hammer, we got Big Spike Hammer, we could go on and on and on and on. There's hundreds of bluegrass songs that have something to do with training. The best of all of those is a song by the name, that's actually like Peter, it has two names. It's uh, sometimes called Life's Mountain Railway or Life's Railway to Heaven. Are you familiar with that song? That is a wonderful bluegrass song that's about the Christian life, and it compares the Christian life to a railway, to a train. Now, if I were the kind of person that put people on the spot, I would say that these guys should come back up and sing that one. I have no idea what they were going to sing. But if I was the kind of person that put people on the spot, I would say they should probably sing that one. But I'm not the kind of person that puts people on the spot, so I'm not going to say that they should come back up and sing that one. If I were, I would say that they should come back up and sing that one. But I'm not going to say that. So, we'll see what happens. But in this song, Life's Mountain, Mountain Railway, this is a song that compares the Christian life to a train, to traveling on a train. And that is a actually not a childish or simplistic illustration. That is a profound illustration of the Christian life. The illustration goes like this. Our life is like a journey. And there is a railroad that takes us to our destination. And our destination is eternal life with God Father. And this railway takes us there. So the railway that takes us to eternal life with God the Father is the same thing that the Bible tells us over and over is what takes us to fellowship with God. What does the Bible say repeatedly that takes us into fellowship with God? Now don't be too quick to answer because the answer might surprise you. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that the pathway to eternal fellowship with God is obedience to His commands. 
Jesus himself even says this. On more than one occasion, he's asked, how do I inherit eternal life? He says, what's the law say? Are you following the law? Go home and follow the law. So the scriptures teach us that the law of God, the commands of God, are the pathway to fellowship with God. But the scriptures also tell us that we cannot follow the pathway. The scriptures teach us that the law of God, the commands of God, the things that God tells us in his word that we should live by, are impossible for us to follow. The commands of, of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, loving God with all of our heart and our soul and uh, strength, or uh, uh, even if you were here last time, as we talked about the nature of sin, if you really understand the commands of God, you realize that we're not capable of doing that even for a short amount of time. So this railway that takes us into the presence of God is not something that we can travel. But the Bible also teaches us that salvation is all about God doing what we cannot do. So then God gives something else. He gives the engine. The engine is what takes us down the railway, which is the railway of God's commands, into his eternal presence. The engine is what does what we cannot do. And we can think of the engine as, as God's spirit that dwells within us, the indwelling presence of God, the spirit of Christ. We can think of that as the Holy Spirit. It is what enters in and lives inside of each converted, born-again believer of Jesus Christ that enables us to do what we cannot do, which is travel that railway of God's commands into the eternal presence of God. So we think of the railway as God's commands for how we live life, and we think of the engine that comes and does what we cannot do, which is to travel that railway. So... How is it that we travel this railway? What keeps us connected to the engine, right? And on the train, what keeps you connected to the engine on the train? It's the, the couplers, right? The couplers? Okay. So we think of the couplers as faith. In the same way that the couplers keep the, car, the train cars attached to the engine so that the train cars go where the train's pulling it, in the same way our faith keeps us attached to God who is doing for us what we cannot do, which is enabling us to follow the commands of God from our heart. And so, that analogy is a tremendously helpful analogy for us, but here's the really important part. Here's the part to make sure that we do it. Most of us don't like that. In fact, all of us don't like that. Most of us don't believe that. Most people try to take that those railroad tracks and pick them up. Rails, cross ties, everything. You just pick them up and stand them upright and lean them up against the doorway to heaven and turn that railroad track into a ladder. Right? The, the railroad track is the commands of God. Most of us try to stand that up and lean that against the door of heaven just like a ladder and then climb those commandments of God into the presence of God. Why do we do that? Because riding a train brings glory to nobody. Who's ever ridden a train? I've taken the kids on the Amtrak, you know, go to Raleigh and back, or go to Greensboro and back. Never once has anybody ever 
ridden in a train, and that train pulled up to the platform, and they got off the train, and there was a crowd of people there standing, waiting to cheer them. Yeah! Great job! You rode the train! That brings glory to nobody to ride a train. There may be glory for the train, for the engine, but there's not glory for the one who just simply rode the train. And our sinful, fallen, prideful hearts hate death. And our prideful, fallen hearts insist on doing something that brings glory to us. And so we pick up that track and we try to turn the track that just takes us into God's presence and turn it into a ladder that we can climb so that we can get there and say, well done, good old I did a great job climbing. That's what Paul is writing against in this book. So, the context is this context of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a, the free gift of salvation, the train engine that takes us to do what we cannot do, and adding something to it, or taking a section of that track and standing up like a ladder. So that's the context. And then the image that we have in mind is this image of this train. You'll take that image and you'll put it in your brain and meditate on it. I promise you, you'll find it helpful. When you are driving home and you cross a railroad track, think of that. Or when you hear a train horn, think of that. Or when you hear a bluegrass song about train, think about that image. And that will help you to think about Christian life. So Paul's writing in this context of adding some sort of human thing to the gospel of salvation. And the image that we have in mind is this train that we want to turn into a ladder. In the context of all that, Paul wrote those words that we said earlier that are so powerful for us, the words that go, once again, like this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, and the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's a lot to think about. We'll just pick a couple things out, and we'll think about a couple things. First of all, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? We should think a little bit about what it means to be crucified. And then I think, I think it'll become apparent to us what Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. To die by crucifixion, you may be aware of this, it was one of the most painful, excruciating, long, slow ways to die that man has ever been. Basically, the victim was nailed to a pole or to a cross and was hung there and left to die, which for most victims took two to five days. Basically, the victim, when you're hanging by your arms, your diaphragm stretches and does not let your lungs expand to, to take in air, and so in order to breathe, the, the crucifixion victim has to literally pull himself up so that he can take a breath. And so as you're hanging there on the cross for day after day, you're pulling yourself up to breathe and then letting yourself down. And finally, eventually, exhaustion just overcomes you and you can no longer pull yourself up to breathe. It's a slow, excruciating way to die. But it was also an enormously humiliating way to die. The victim was stripped naked and then tortured publicly. It's bad enough to be tortured, of course, but to be tortured publicly would be an additional insult. So the victim is tortured publicly. 
and then hung on this pole or the cross, naked, in a very public area. Usually the Romans would crucify their victims right beside a public, busy road. So the crucifixion victim is hanging here for days, naked, while everybody in the whole city passes by and sees the children throw rocks at them, adults laughing, making jokes. The whole time they're engaged in this frantic struggle. Pull, breathe, release. Pull, breathe, release. Pull, breathe, release. For days and days and days. Incredibly painful. Shockingly humiliating. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What Paul means is this, first of all, if we could transport ourselves back to the year 33 AD, whatever it was, and we could be present at the crucifixion of Jesus, and we could have the knowledge that he was doing this for me, none of us would ever make light of our sin. If that would be impossible. It would be impossible to stand at the foot of the cross knowing that Jesus was doing that for you and then say, well, my sin's not that bad. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as this guy down the road. At least I don't do that. No one could make light of what put Jesus up there. No one could stand there and say, well, at least I'm not blank. It would be impossible to be at the foot of the cross and be anything but overwhelmed by the gravity of what put Jesus up there. That's number one. Number two, again, if any of us could be transported back to the crucifixion side of Jesus and we could be there again with the knowledge that he was doing that for us, then it would be impossible to have any pride at the foot of the cross. It would be impossible to look upon Jesus and say, I'm going to accept that way of salvation and I'm going to add a little something to it because that's not quite good enough. No one could stand there and say, that's pretty good, that almost gets me there. Now if I just add some dietary laws to that, then I'll get down the railroad. No one could look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ knowing that it was for you and be anything but overwhelmed by the severity of your sin and the absolute humility that that heaps upon you. And then fill you, of course, with adoration and appreciation for what he was doing. That's what Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Here are these Galatian Christians, and here was for a moment in time Peter, who said in their heart, they, they gave way in their heart to that Primal tendency, that sinful tendency to say, I want to take just this section of track and I want to make it into a ladder. And here's Paul saying, you can't do that at the foot of the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. There is no way I could be crucified with Christ and think that I can add something to what he has done. Or think that what he has saved me from is anything that I could make a lot of. I have been crucified with Christ. Now the other part of what Paul says here is the longer I live, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in some God who loved me and gave himself to me. Faith is the covenant. 
Faith is what keeps us attached to the God who's doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But how is it that faith does it? How is it that this thing called faith attaches us to God and keeps us on the railway? If we understand what faith is, it does all make sense. Faith is not, please understand this, faith is not believing in God. A lot of people believe in God. Satan believes in God. Satan believes every word of Scripture. Belief in God is not faith. Faith is not only belief in God, but also, and this is the important part, complete trust in all his promises. Faith in God and complete trust in all his promises. Now, the scriptures are full of promises from God. We could spend hours talking about all the promises of God. But let me just summarize all the promises of God in one succinct statement. Remember this statement. All the promises of God can be boiled down to this. Sin and the world promise you a lot. They promise you power, they promise you recognition, they promise you comfort, they promise you pleasure. Sin, Satan, and the world can promise you a lot, but whatever they promise you, Jesus is infinitely better. Those are the promises of God. All the promises of God can be restated like that. Whatever sin promises you, Jesus is infinitely better. And so faith keeps us attached to the engine that takes us down the railway and keeps us from being derailed off the track. Because faith is not just belief in God, but also complete trust in His promise that whatever sin promises you, Jesus is infinitely better. When sin promises you pleasure, can sin deliver on that? Yeah. Sin can bring you pleasure. Sin can bring you power. Sin can bring you recognition. Sin can bring you comfort. But whatever sin can bring you, Jesus is infinitely better. That's what keeps our cars on the track. That's what keeps us coupled to the engine. That is how faith works to keep us attached to the God that moves us down the track. That image you'll find helpful. Paul's words, you'll find more. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I live. But Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith. Trusting completely that Jesus is better than anything sin can promise. I live by faith in the Son of God. And His promises can be trusted infinitely. Why? Because He loved me and gave Himself for me. Thank you, Father, for the of the Scripture. Thank you. Jesus is infinitely better. Thank you. We do not have to climb a ladder. Thank you that you have made the way. In Jesus' name.